Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So the book of Ezekiel. Last week we went over the book of Jeremiah, and the books of Jeremiah and the books, book of Ezekiel, they share things in common. Some things are in common, some things are not. So keep that in mind as you as we go. There will be some things that kind of overlap, but other areas where Ezekiel is doing his own thing, and some scholars have only guesses at what he's doing. So it's really interesting. So let's give a little bit of background. If you remember back in our look at the book of 2 Kings, it's one of the historical books in the Hebrew canon they called a prophetic book. But for us today, it feels more like history than prophecy. And at the end of the book of 2 Kings, there was an attack by the Babylonians on Jerusalem. An initial attack that defeated the city and some of the people of Israel were taken prisoner and made exiles in Babylon. And Ezekiel is one of those people who was taken prisoner during that first assault on Jerusalem. Now, that, in that first assault, the Babylonians spared the city. They didn't destroy it. They didn't destroy the temple. They defeated the Judahites. But they kept the temple as it was. And they took some people as prisoners, as I just mentioned. So Ezekiel is one of them. And the book itself begins five years after this initial attack of Jerusalem Five years after these Israelites are taken as exiles into Babylon. So Ezekiel is just sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israeli refugee camp. And it's his 30th birthday. And I didn't go over this in any of our classes. But it's helpful to know that when priests, if you were in the Levite tribe, when you turned 30... When you were in line to become a priest, that is when you become a priest. So here is Ezekiel. He is not in Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. He's at this refugee camp. And on his 30th birthday, he's minding his own business by the canal. And what happens? He has a vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching. And inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touch each other. And these four creatures have four faces. And he sees four wheels below them. And then he sees that on top of this dazzling platform is the likeness of a human creature. And he's glowing. He's enshrouded by fire. And it's at this point that Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. And he calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say this was the Lord. 
right? Because for Jews, that'd be pretty problematic with the second commandment. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he sees in this vision God riding on his royal throne chariot. This is very similar to the imagery we found back at Mount Sinai in Exodus. And the imagery that we find hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Ark of the Covenant itself, actually, in the temple. And this should raise a huge question for the reader right off the bat. And it is, what is God's glory doing in Babylon? Even if this is only a vision, in this vision, the royal chariot of the Lord has come down to Babylon. This is supposed to be in Jerusalem, in the temple. What is it doing here? And this sets the stage for the entire book of Ezekiel. So, in the first few chapters, Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet. And in chapters 1 through 11, Ezekiel accuses Israel of breaking covenant. No new news here, but he's just reiterating, you guys are breaking the law You're not doing good things. In fact, he he emphasizes in these early chapters that there is rampant social injustice and there's violence. And what he is saying, what he has been called by God to say to the Israelites, is that, you know that first Babylonian attack that happened that got a whole bunch of us here in Babylon? There's going to be another. An imminent destruction is coming. He's a little bit of a Debbie Downer, but it's, he's a Debbie Downer because he's saying that for so long, the Lord has been merciful. For so long, the Lord has withheld those curses that he's talked about with the covenant at Mount Sinai. And it's getting to a point where God has to act on God's justice. So, in some of these, the ways that Ezekiel gets his points across is he, has, he doesn't just tell them, repent, or imminent disaster is coming. He does these sign acts. And we saw this a little bit last week in Jeremiah. We might call these sign acts today, think of street theater. Street theater that is a little countercultural and a little weird, but it's getting at your attention for effect. For effect, it's getting your attention. So some of this stuff was bizarre. Some of the things he built or he did, was that he built this tiny model of the city of Jerusalem, and he staged an attack on it. Another one, the one that maybe you're more familiar with, is he played the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And if you remember, Ezekiel's that guy who lays on his side for over a year. And he's getting across to them, essentially, that... You are not making atonement. You're not repenting. Um, And what God tells Ezekiel is that the worst news of all for you, the prophet, is that the people will not heed your word. I am sending you out to be a messenger, both in word and in deed, but because of my people's stone-cold hearts, like in the wilderness... They will not repent. And actually, chapter 7 
ends or has this this scene. It's like it's pretty. It's like I wish it was made into film. There's this kind of serious moment when God says, "The time for repenting is past. I will enact my just judgment on Israel." And in this chapter. Ezekiel makes it sound like there's a finality to this. I am done with my people. This is the end, according to these early chapters in Ezekiel. So this other section within that 1 through 11, his accusations against Israel, in chapter 8 he has another vision. So the first vision is of the, the chariot, the royal chariot, God's presence has departed from Jerusalem and is in Babylon. In this other vision, Ezekiel is taken on a virtual tour of the temple. It's as if an angel takes him and he's at the temple and he sees what's going on there. And what does Ezekiel see? Have they repented? Has anything changed? Not at all. There is idolatry not only happening outside the temple, but inside the temple too. And so if it wasn't made explicit in the early chapters, it's made explicit here. God's glorious throne has left the temple and has come to Babylon. And for Ezekiel, what this means is that God has the consigned not only the city, but even the great temple itself to destruction. Remember, we brought up the fire at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, last week in Jeremiah. Here, it's like that for the people of Israel, they only have one Notre Dame, and it's the temple. So on some level, the whole purpose of this book is helping people come to understand why is it that God allowed Jerusalem to fall? How could it be so that the Lord would allow His own temple to be destroyed? Does this mean that we merely have a tribal deity who's been destroyed by the deities of Babylon? And Ezekiel is saying, the Lord, Adonai, left the temple of his own free will, consigning it to destruction. Now, this isn't like God being wrathful for the sake of being wrathful. This is understood in Ezekiel as the just judgment of a patient and merciful God whose word has gone completely unheeded. And if we remember from early on in the context of that conditional covenant... The relationship between God and Israel. Because it was a conditional covenant. It's gotten to a point where God says, no more. This really is like the worst kind of horror you can imagine. And for the people of Israel, think of 9-11. Think of Pearl Harbor. Think of the worst possible thing that we've experienced in this country. This was the ultimate disaster. And it kind of helps us understand why Ezekiel is going to such lengths. He's being so weird to try to get people's attention. So, chapter 11 is one of the key transitions in this book. 
And the next three sections that we'll look at, notice judgments against Israel, judgments against the nations, uh, well, those are essentially in, in the first one. Um, they're all about God's judgment on first Israel, then the nations, uh, and then on all of creation. And this should be the nations, and this should be all of creation. So I screwed that up, so I'm sorry. Um, so the next three sections, the first three sections are God's judgment on Israel, the nations, and all of creation. Um, and then, but even at the beginning, when things are at their absolute worst, when there's a finality to God's judgment, my people are clean cut off. At the end of chapter 11, there is this note of hope. It's very brief. And it, Ezekiel mentions a remnant of Israel, but he also mentions hope for the nation's and all of creation. But he doesn't give us too much just yet, because we're still in the judgment sections. So, chapters 12 through 24 are still about God's judgment against Israel. There are lots of parables and allegories that Ezekiel uses. Um, he uses some of the images he uses to talk about Israel, Judah. He uses the image of a burnt, useless stick, a dangerous lion, a promiscuous sister, a rebellious spouse. These are all pictures that get at Israel's senseless idolatry and rebellion against God. Um, And in this section, we kind of see Ezekiel as a lawyer. So... um, What he's essentially arguing at this point, which is just to reiterate what we said earlier, is that even if the the most righteous person in all of Israel were to pray to God, spare your people, God would not heed that prayer. It has gotten so bad. It's reminiscent of that prayer, right, in the Pentateuch, right, Lord, if there are a hundred people in the city. Will you save the city? If there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you save it? If there are 10, and then God can't even find 10. Well, here he's saying, it has gotten so bad with my people that I will not heed that prayer. My, ju- my justice demands judgment. On some level, this is the worst news of all, right? This is what makes the gospel that we encounter so powerful. Uh, because it really is this... Judgment that sounds like it's the very end. So, chapters 25 through 32, it moves from God's judgment of Israel. It's not just God's judgment of his people, but also the surrounding kingdoms. He focuses specifically on Egypt and Tyre, but also some of the surrounding smaller nations. And what he says, especially to Egypt and Tyre, is that you, and when he's talking about the nation, There's really no distinction between the nation and the ruler. You have arrogantly set yourself up as gods. And I am now holding you accountable for your pride. And the way I'm going to hold you accountable is to use my instrument, Babylon, which brought down Israel, right? But now is going to bring down all of you. So Ezekiel sees the historical record, essentially, as uh, an unveiling of the judgment of God 
on not only Israel, but the nations who are putting themselves up as gods. Especially in this section here with the nations. It is as if we're back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve setting themselves up. It's just like uh, the Tower of Babel, right? We are going to put a name for ourselves. We are going to become gods ourselves. And what does that break? That breaks the very first of the Ten Commandments. So this whole section kind of comes to an end right here with this chapter 33 that I've kind of indented for what I haven't really gone into because there's so much in this book is that there are other prophets at the same time as Ezekiel's prophesying who are saying the same things we heard last week in Jeremiah. No, the prophet Jeremiah is too hard. This is merely a slap on the wrist. The Lord is going to restore Jerusalem and the temple before we know it. In this book, too, there were prophets who were essentially saying, no, this guy Ezekiel, look at him doing these weird sign acts. He's a total weirdo. God is going to come in. He's going to set things straight before we know it. There's no way he'd let the temple, the place, his house, go down. But in chapter 33, Ezekiel is met with yet another refugee from Jerusalem who announces to the exiles in Babylon that the city has fallen, that the temple has been destroyed. It's essentially leading us on this horrible note that all of our hopes, wishes, and dreams have been destroyed. But for Ezekiel... This is not the final word of devastation and despair, for he prophesied that this was ha- would happen. But as we hinted at early on in chapter 11, he said this must happen, but there will be hope. There will be an undoing to this. And this is why it's interesting. Whenever we see notes of finality in Scripture, there is no hope for these people. These people have been clean cut off in the Old Testament and in the New. That's not always the final, final word. So keep that in mind as we go into these next two weeks and even as we go into the New Testament. So, just a quick recap, because I really should have done this book over a couple weeks. But the quick recap is that at the beginning of the book, we see Ezekiel sitting among the exiles in Babylon. He's confronted by this vision of the awesome presence of God who has apparently left the temple, is in Babylon. And we see in the book this divine judgment for Israel, the surrounding nations. And finally, at the end of chapter 33, we see that refugee from Jerusalem come down to Babylon and say it's all over. Essentially, what Ezekiel said was right and what the other prophets said was wrong. God's temple has been destroyed. And maybe you're into like existentialism or like existential movies. You can only imagine what this must have felt like to the Israelites. Like our whole way of life, our deity even, was destroyed because they just couldn't fathom this. But Ezekiel has been trying to say all this time, no, Adonai has left the temple because we are such a mess because of our stone-cold 
hearts. The next three sections are all about hope. So in case you're really depressed right now, uh, there's hope is coming. And the hope is first for Israel, next for the nations, and then for all creation. So as you can see, this book kind of mirrors itself with its first and second halves, pure and opposite. So, in chapters 34 through 37, is the hope for Israel is presented. Ezekiel says that God will raise up a new David, a new ruler, who unlike the rulers of Israel and Judah who got us into this mess, this will be a righteous king. He says God will not only raise up a new David, but he will raise up a new Israel whose hearts will no longer be hearts of stone, but will be hearts of flesh. This will be transformed Israel. And if this doesn't make you think about Jeremiah in those hopeful passages, I don't know what will. The new covenant where the law will no longer be put on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Here we see in a different image, a different illustration, this hope for a new and transformed Israel with hearts of flesh. So they will be given new hearts, it says. And the example of the changed hearts isn't as Jim Monroe likes to say all the time, it's Christianity is not about Christians getting better. This book makes it clear the message of Ezekiel is not about the people of God getting better. The vision he receives in this part of the book is the vision of the valley of dry bones. Anybody remember that vision? Ezekiel has this vision where, this is again, right after the temple, like chapter 33, right? The city, the temple are destroyed. And yet, he says God's going to raise up a new David, a new Israel. What is that going to look like? Well, he sees the dry bones scattered, completely dissembled. It's a metaphor for the spiritual state of Israel. Not just the spiritual, but the physical state of Israel. And in this vision, he sees those who were once dead. The sinews coming together, the bones being put, skin being put on. This is resurrection, even here in the Old Testament. The Spirit has come to bring people back to life. Here, God is remaking humanity to live in a relationship of love with him and with each other. This is another illustration of the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. Not making good people better or bad people a little better, but making people completely new, raising them from the dead. In chapters 38 and 39, we get a hope for the nations here in the book of Ezekiel. These chapters, and I find this like super fascinating. So if you're 
only going to look at two chapters. Check this out. Check the whole book out. But in these chapters, God promises the final defeat of evil among the nations. And he uses these symbols of Gog of Magog. Who is Gog of Magog? Well, people don't really know. But this Gog is mentioned back way back in Genesis of this ancient kingdom that was against God's purposes. So he's obviously not being literal here. This is a symbol for all that comes against the righteousness and holiness of God in the nations. And in this image, he says that seven nations gather behind Gog. And there's a whole lot of context with seven. This is essentially the the perfect number, right? These are all the powers of evil, sin and death gathered together. It's the archetype of human rebellion. And what happens? God unleashes his justice on God. Here is the Old Testament version of Christus Victor that we talked about last year. This is the Old Testament version of the defeat of sin and death on the cross. This is the revelation that God will finally and ultimately defeat evil once and for all. Here in the Old Testament. So now chapters 40 through 48. In these chapters, we move from hope for Israel, the hope for the nations, to the hope for all creation. So once evil is finally dealt with, once and for all, and that's why I've called this the Old Testament apocalypse, the Old Testament version of Revelation, because it looks very similar. It's just in a different testament. So once evil has been finally dealt with, in this, the last section of the book, it describes how God is going to return to his people and even to his temple. In these chapters, Ezekiel gets another vision. And in this vision, chapters 40 through 46, we see a temple that's much larger and majestic than Solomon's temple. It, it's massive. Things are way better than ever before. And the people themselves... They have been given hearts of flesh. The law is written on their hearts. The relationship between God and humanity is on good terms. Ultimately, that glorious royal throne that left Jerusalem and appeared to Ezekiel in Babylon comes back to Jerusalem. And here God restores humanity And he gives his life-giving presence. And we see in these chapters Garden of Eden-like imagery. It's a garden city in this new Jerusalem that he is envisioning. And in this vision, there is this brook or this river that comes out of the temple and goes all the way through, and Jim knows this more than any of us, all the way through Israel and the West Bank as we know it now, and goes all the way to the Dead Sea. 
And the imagery here is that the Dead Sea itself is made alive and teems with creatures. I was at the Dead Sea a couple years ago. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea. The imagery here is that God has defeated evil. He's restored Israel, the nations, the cosmos to such a degree that what was once dead is now teeming with life. And the book ends by saying this place in Jerusalem shall be called the Lord is here. And then it ends. So, while there is a lot of judgment in Ezekiel, and there are a lot of weird things, and I'll be honest, when you read Ezekiel in your English Bibles, even the most literalists of translators tone it down because at times, to illustrate the waywardness of God's people, it is pornographic. But this is all because the temple, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. Who are we now? How do we make sense of ourselves now? And Ezekiel is saying... God did this. God left. God will return. And the hope that we don't see as fully realized until we get to the New Testament is that God, not you and me, will make a way where there was no way. Again, it's not about good people getting better. It's about God raising the dead and giving us life. And the thing I mentioned in right after the reading of Revelation is if you know anything about the book of Revelation and we'll get there the ending is very similar to the ending here in Ezekiel except the temple is replaced with the presence of the lamb himself Jesus is that temple it's directly talking to this book in Revelation right you have the defeat of the powers of sin and death It's in here too. And so we have gospel here in Ezekiel too. It's not just judgment. It is telling the people of God, even today, that where we screwed things up, God made a way out of nowhere. And that ultimately you and I have hope that all of those negative character traits that we hate about ourselves... All of those sins that we fall into time and time again. All of those addictions in our lives. You name it. Will be refined and done away with. For as Jeremiah says. The law of God will no longer be on tablets of stone that accuse. But it will be on our hearts. We will be given. will no longer have hearts of stone. As it says in this book. But we will be given hearts of flesh. Where serving God and our neighbor will be second nature. It will really feel like freedom. And that's good news. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. 
Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.